You're listening to a podcast of local news from the County of Suffolk in the United Kingdom. This is brought to you by the St. Edmundsbury News Talk Association, a UK registered charity. Hello and welcome to the 1,925th edition of St Edmundsbury News Talk for the 20th of April 2023. The editor of this edition is Sue Aitchison, the producer is Roger Morris, and your readers are Sue Harrington-Spear and Neil Keeley. Hello. We should also mention our processing team, who work hard behind the scenes to copy and dispatch this memory stick to you. We commence, as always, with the headlines. Over 130 crashes on Notorious Road in last five years. Hospital chiefs apologise to patients forced to wait for care. Cinema plans progress with licensing, yes. End of an era as councillor hands on district baton. More than 130 crashes were recorded within a mile of a notorious roundabout in the last six years. Data obtained by this newspaper via Freedom of Information legislation shows Suffolk Police were called to a total of 131 crashes on the A11 at Barton Mills within one mile of the Five Ways roundabout since 2017. Of these, one was considered serious and one was fatal, prompting calls for change from West Suffolk MP Matt Hancock and Suffolk's Police and Crime Commissioner. Mr Hancock, who ran a successful campaign for traffic lights at Five Ways, said to hear there have been 131 crashes and one fatality since 2017 is a concern because no one should lose their life or be seriously injured on our roads. One crash is one too many. I hope these stats provide a gentle reminder to motorists to drive sensibly and carefully. Tim Passmore, Suffolk Police and Crime Commissioner, said the carriageway in and around the Five Ways roundabout continues to cause great concern, as evidenced by the number of crashes recorded. Further improvements are urgently needed from national highways, and I will be raising this again at one of our regular meetings. The multi-agency Suffolk Road Safe Board will continue to support initiatives that improve driving standards and raise awareness of what the consequences of driver error can be, since every accident or serious injury can be very disruptive and potentially have tragic consequences. He added that Suffolk Police have invested in hotspot technology to target patrols to locations where crashes are common. Mark Lambert, National Highway's route manager for Suffolk, said they monitor all roads to see where improvements can be made. He said our previous work on the A11 and Five Ways Roundabout has addressed issues of safety and congestion, but we are continuing to look at what else can be done to improve and future-proof this busy and vital junction. A number of different designs for the Five Ways Roundabout are currently being examined as part of the third roads investment strategy, that is for projects that are being considered for construction between 2025 and 2030. 
Hospital Trust in Suffolk have apologised to patients who have experienced long waits to be seen at their accident and emergency departments. For the first time, NHS England has revealed the number of people attending A&D who have to wait more than 12 hours before being admitted, transferred or discharged. The figures, which are for February, have shown that West Suffolk NHS Foundation Trust, which had 6,230 people attend its A&E department in February, had 900 people wait for more than 12 hours, amounting to 14.5% of all attendees. East Suffolk and North Essex NHS Foundation Trust, which covers Ipswich and Colchester Hospital, had 12,420 visitors in February, with 880 of those waiting more than 12 hours to be admitted, transferred or discharged, 7.1% of the total. Deputy Chief Operating Officer of West Suffolk NHS Foundation Trust, Matt Keeling, said... Due to an increase in the overall demand for our services, recent operational challenges and reduced capacity due to our ongoing estates maintenance programme, waiting times are currently high, and I apologise to every patient who experiences a long wait for care in our emergency department. We recognise the impact of this issue and have undertaken significant work to identify where we can make improvements focused on the processes which affect the flow of patients through the Trust. The Trust is working to improve patient flow and reduce waiting times. Dr Andrew Tillett, Chief Medical Officer at East Suffolk and North Essex NHS Foundation Trust, said, All our staff work hard to minimise the amount of time patients need to spend in our emergency departments, but there are times when this is challenging. We have seen considerable pressure on our service over the winter and some people have had to wait longer than we would like, for which we are very sorry. A cinema planned for Bury St Edmunds has been given the green light to show films and sell alcohol until midnight. An everyman cinema in the basement of the former Debenhams in Charter Square will be able to serve customers from 8am to midnight on most days. On Fridays and Saturdays, the latest time customers can watch films or buy alcohol will extend to 1am. Tuesday's decision by West Suffolk Council is a step forward for the cinema, which Everyman Media hopes could be opened by the end of the year. Andrew Woods, solicitor for Everyman Media, said he hoped the cinema could be a welcome addition to Bury. In response to residents' worries about noise, Mr Wood said, We have no problems with noise or customers leaving the premises whatsoever in all our other premises, partly because people are paying a higher price to come to our cinemas. Two representations were made in opposition when the proposed licensing times were 8am to 3am every day, complaining about drunkenness and disorder, noise and litter. Councillor Tom Murray of Berry Town Council lives next to the site. He said, The worry most people have isn't about the cinema itself. We like that, and we like the jobs it will bring. But I am still a little bit concerned about the 1am closing time on Fridays and Saturdays, and a lot of people don't like midnight opening on a Sunday, for which I can't blame them. After the decision, Councillor Murray said he hoped it would not cause any problems and reiterated his support for the cinema itself. No representations against the proposal were made by any responsible authorities, including police and the environmental health team, 
the main bodies covering antisocial behaviour and add noise. Alongside films, the licensing hours cover showing plays, live music, recorded music and dance. These other forms of entertainment would supplement a few events, including film Q&A sessions and corporate events. However, representatives from the cinema company made clear that the central purpose of the venue would be to show films. Everyman Media runs 38 cinemas and 130 screens in the UK. The shape of local politics will change after May's district elections <coughs> as a long-standing Bury St Edmunds district councillor hands on the baton. David Nettleton is not standing again for West Suffolk Council. It marks the end of an era for the 78-year-old, who was first elected to St Edmundsbury Borough Council in 2003 and re-elected in 2007, 2011 and 2015, then elected for Tolgate Ward in 2019 on the newly formed West Suffolk Council. After 20 years, I didn't want to commit to another four years. 2027 seems a long way off. I hope to serve out my term on Suffolk County Council, which ends in May 2025, as by-elections are costly and should be avoided if possible, he said. David's career highlights include the installation of Malthout Bridge, connecting Northern Berry with the train station and town centre, which he first advocated in September 1999, before becoming a councillor. The bridge, which also connects Northgate Avenue to three schools, opened in June 2014. My main frustration is that the cycle route doesn't yet extend to Klondike, currently an unadopted, sometimes muddy path, which bisects two high schools. I have two years left on the County Council to fulfil this ambition, said David. Meanwhile, we will only get cleaner air and safer streets in Bury if both councils, district and county, work together to improve bus services in and around the town and provide cycle routes people want to use. With Bury's population likely to hit 50,000 by 2031, David said one of the big problems the town faced was how to get people in and out of the town and called for joined-up thinking to address highways issues. And looking back, David said people's attitudes had changed over the years. People are more angry now than they used to be, and I think the pandemic is part of that, he said. When I started as a councillor, people objected to planning applications as they always will, but it was not as, as vociferous as now. And back then, candidates used to put their home address on the ballot paper. Now the majority write an address in West Suffolk for fear of reprisals from irate residents. It's very sad, but a sign of the times. When asked if he has any regrets, David says, not really. I've done 20 years, I've known councillors before who have done one more term, and it was one term too long. I know when it's time to pass on the baton. A spate of mindless vandalism targeting cars on estates in Bury St Edmunds has had far-reaching consequences for many families, one of the victims has said. Windscreens, windows and wing mirrors were smashed and bodywork scratched between 3am and 5am on Thursday, April the 6th, on the Howard Estate, Milden, Road Estate, Milden Hall Road Estate and Marham Park, with 10 incidents reported to police. One resident said the back windscreen of her husband's car was smashed during the trail of vandalism and they were now unable to use the family vehicle for a week until it was fixed. 
She said, on one hand, I know it wasn't a personal attack. I was swept along in whatever their stupid plan was. But it's the impact this has caused for all those families. It's beyond what they thought was two minutes of fun. It's far-reaching for so many families. It's mindless. That's what's so frustrating, because you know they don't care. The resident woke up to their car alarm going off at about 5.20am and went out in the rain and dark to discover the damage, which they said was horrible. A neighbour who was up early, ready for work, had also heard a loud bang on their back door and thinks the culprits threw a lump of concrete at it. It gave him the fright of his life, said the residents. Their car was also targeted during a spate of vandalism in 2019. He said the community had rallied followed the latest incidents with attempts made to gather details of all the damage. Of the incidents reported to police, three vehicles were damaged in Lancaster Avenue, two in Northumberland Avenue, two in Eagle Walk, one in Manock Drive, one in Beaton's Way and one in St Olaf's Road. Anyone who has any information, particularly video doorbell footage in these roads and neighbouring streets, is asked to contact Suffolk Police. An outdoor gym at a hotel has been denied retrospective planning permission after complaints. All Sense Hotel in Fornham St Genevieve built the gym, complete with a shelter and equipment, during COVID-19 lockdown, but neighbours said early morning classes have caused them distress due to noise. During a West Suffolk Council Development and Control Committee meeting on April the 3rd, resident Caroline Merritt said the noise has had a serious impact on her life. Councillor Becky Hoffensperger said that some of the trees at the formerly dense woodland of Johns Hill Plantation had been cut to build the gym. There are two tree preservation orders in place at the site. Councillor David Roach said, The message that you can do what you like and apply for retrospective permission and get accepted isn't a good one. Councillor Andy Drummond, the tree champion of the council, recommended the committee refuse the plans and said replanting the area would be essential. The application was unanimously refused. Joe Churchill, MP, is to lead Suffolk's Chamber of Commerce's ongoing lobbying efforts to secure investment for business along the A14. The Bury St Edmunds MP, who has been campaigning for investment since 2015, will help raise the profile of the A14 Growth Corridor campaign group and its ongoing call for investment along the route from the Port of Felixstowe to the Cambridgeshire border. The campaign group was approved at a recent meeting of Suffolk Chambers Transport and Infrastructure Group, chaired by Steve Britt, <coughs> local businesses and other stakeholders, heard from representatives from Transport East, Suffolk County Council, National Highways and Network Rail, as well as its own team leading on 5G infrastructure, about the need to explain the national significance of the route to government, while maximising short-term investment opportunities. Mr Britt said, It is clear that we now need another unified campaign to make Suffolk's case for not only investment in the road itself, but to attract funding to boost the associated rail and mobile systems along its length. Having Joe on board means we will have an improved parliamentary profile for the A14 growth corridor, plus the expertise of the business members of the campaign group. 
where Suffolk MP Matt Hancock is being investigated by Parliament's standards watchdog. The former Health Secretary is under investigation for allegedly putting pressure on the Parliamentary Commission for Standards, Daniel Greenberg, as he considered a possible breach of the MP's Code of Conduct. Allies said he was shocked at the launch of the investigation by the Common Standards Czar, claiming it was a misunderstanding. The Common Standards Watchdog website said Mr Hancock is under investigation for lobbying the Commissioner in a manner calculated or intended to influence his consideration of whether a breach of the Code or conduct has occurred. A spokesman for Mr Hancock said the ex-Minister had written to Mr Greenberg in relation to an inquiry he was currently conducting and the launch of the investigation was clearly a misunderstanding. Mr Hancock is shocked and surprised by the investigation, the spokesman said. Far from lobbying the Commissioner, Matt wrote to Mr Greenberg in good faith to offer some additional evidence that he thought was not only pertinent but helpful for an inquiry the Parliamentary Commission for Standards is currently conducting. It's clearly a misunderstanding and Matt looks forward to fully engaging with the Commissioner to clear this up. The Ark Shopping Centre held an Easter-themed trail and activities day for families in a bid to support a local food bank. The Bury St Edmunds Centre has this year announced Gatehouse, a charity supporting food insecure residents, as its sponsored charity. On Easter Monday, families were invited to take part in the event. They had to scope out clues in shop and restaurant windows as part of a traditional trail hunt. Afterwards, children went to Charter Square, where they could spin a wheel to net either an Easter treat for themselves, a donation for Gatehouse, or both. Fifty Easter eggs were supplied to the food bank ahead of the event, as part of a goodwill gesture by the Ark. All proceeds raised from the event will go to Gatehouse. And some more Easter news. Crowds gathered in Bury St Edmunds Town Centre for the town's Easter Walk of Witness. The Good Friday event is an annual tradition organised by churches together in Bury St Edmunds and District. It began with a service at St Edmunds Cathedral, which was followed by a procession across Angel Hill, up Abbeygate Street and along Butter Market to the Market Square outside Moises Hall Museum. The walk was behind a large wooden cross accompanied by a single drum beat. A short service of songs and readings was held at the Market Square. The event included elements contributed from various churches of different Christian denominations. Meanwhile, the C3 Church hosted a fun day in the Abbey Gardens with lawn games, balloons, cookie decorating and an Easter egg hunt. At 2.30pm, a Good Friday message was emblazoned across the sky for residents. The C3 Church Berry holds services every Sunday at King Edward VI School. A new building for a CT scanner is to be constructed on staff car parking at West Suffolk Hospital. The modular CT imaging building will remain on the car park, linked to the day surgery and eye treatment centre for 12 months before being moved within the hospital site to a more permanent base. A true legend of Bury St Edmunds, who was well known for his achievements in football, boxing and greyhound racing, has died aged 86. 
Joe Taylor, who died on April the 4th, held the Suffolk middleweight title in boxing for about eight years and in football had a big input in starting the Bury Sunday League with his beloved prize United being one of the founder members. The father of four also ran his own demolition firm, J.J. Taylor Demolition Contractors, and gave many local people casual work if they needed it, helping to tear down buildings across the town, including the Odeon Cinema. A tribute from his family and friend, Billy Robinson, said, A true legend of Bury and beyond. There will never be another like Joey. Born in County Durham, he moved to Baton, aged four, and completed his national service in the 1950s in the army with a Suffolk regiment stationed at Gibraltar Barracks in Bury. His funeral will be held at St Mary's Church in Bury on Tuesday, the 25th of April, at 2.30pm. A pair of photo albums documenting the wedding of a Bury St Edmunds man's parents over 70 years ago have gone missing, prompting an appeal to the public. Images from the albums owned by Gavin Downs were recently featured in the Love and War in Suffolk exhibition at the Guildhall. The photos were taken at the wedding of Mr Downs' parents, Jack and Dessie Downs, which took place in Germany on April the 6th, 1946. Neither Jack nor Dessie is still alive. Mr Downs last remembers seeing the albums at the Gavin Ashley Hair Salon, which he owns shortly after he got them back from Guildhall staff three weeks ago. He's appealing to the public in case anyone has encountered the albums. West Suffolk Council is to receive £753,701 for planned schemes to support rural areas. It will deliver initiatives, including green spaces, encouraging visitors, waste and street scene improvements and arts and heritage funding over the next two years. The district was selected as part of a £110 million injection from the government's Rural England Prosperity Fund. A significant portion will go towards grants for businesses and community groups. Now I have some letters. My first letter is from Bob Jones of Bury St Edmunds. And he writes, I was very moved by the Good Friday Christian activity in the town centre. The service in the cathedral attended by over 500 people of many different denominations. The walk of witness led by the cross carried by members of Southgate Church up Abbeygate Street with regular drumbeat and the open air service in the market square surrounded by all the open shops. Apart from the solemnity of the event, it spoke volumes about what can be achieved when Christians unite together. Congratulations are offered to the organising committee of churches together in Bury St Edmunds and District for such a poignant event to which so many people contributed. The icing on the cake, so to speak, was the excellent comprehensive coverage given by BBC Look East and presenter Mike Liggins on the evening local news bulletins which gave a very positive view of our town. Finally, the good news of Easter <coughs> give us the will to be the servant of others as Jesus was and is the servant of all. You gave up your life and died for us all but are alive and reign now and forever. And this one is from John Main who's the Chief Executive of Cats Protection and he writes, thank you for your support. 
I would like to send my personal thanks to, pr to players of People's Postcode Lottery who have been supporting Cats Protection since 2018. During that time, funds raised by players have enabled us to help and care for around 10,000 cats and kittens in our adoption centres across England, Scotland and Wales while they await their forever homes. In addition, they have also helped us provide cat behaviour expertise to our cat care volunteers and staff and adopters, run our paws to listen, grief support service to help bereaved cat owners and speak up for cats to help create positive change for cat welfare via our advocacy work. Thank you to all the players of People's Postcode Lottery for your ongoing support. Together we create a better world for cats. And anyone wishing to adopt a cat or support cat's protection or seeking advice on cat welfare can find out more at www.cats.org.uk. Now my next letter via email is for, from Despina Stacy, and she writes, Who can I get in touch with in regard to rubbish on the A14? It's absolutely disgusting. The roadside is full of rubbish the entire stretch of the A14 around Newmarket and Bury St Edmunds. Why isn't anything being done about it? There are trees covered with plastic bags which are completely stuck in the branches. There's plastic everywhere. This is the worst amount of rubbish on an A road I've ever seen. It's shameful and grotesque. As a person originally from the outskirts of London, the M25 is far, far busier than the A14, but there is nowhere near this amount of rubbish. That's likely because it's being regularly cleaned. I don't think the A14 has ever been cleaned by the looks of it. I'm actually embarrassed for Suffolk. What will visitors to our county think using this road and witnessing this plastic mess? What does that say about our county? It really needs sorting. And here's another embarrassing story. Cars forced to weave around potholes. They're mm. probably not the deepest potholes in Suffolk, nor the most dangerous, but I reckon the cratered surface of Newmarket Road in Bury St Edmunds must be responsible for some of what would appear to be the most erratic driving. To the unsuspecting, the road must come as a bit of a shock. Stretch after stretch of damaged road surfaces... Before you've had time to straighten your car after swerving around one section, the next is upon you. Oddly, it only seems to be the side of the carriageway le leading out of the town that is damaged. Every driver by now must have a pothole story. Blown tyres, holes so deep you can barely see the bottom, delayed repairs, but what prompted me to write today was the sight of a hearse having to swerve its way up the road to avoid the potholes. Personally, I've now worked out a route up the road which avoids the worst of the crater surface, but it's more or less impossible to miss them all. I've also learnt to allow extra space between my car and the vehicle in front, just in case a new hole has opened up since my previous journey. So, if you see a small white car being driven somewhat erratically up Newmarket Road, it's not because the driver's been drinking, it's simply someone trying to avoid the potholes but he won't be the only one. Most drivers at the wheel of anything other than a lorry or the toughest of 4x4s will be doing the same. A quick check of Suffolk Highway's pothole reporting mat shows I'm not alone. Many drivers have reported the problem. I particularly like the road is in tatters. 
Hopefully something will be done soon. This was written by Anthony Graham via email. Next letter from Mr B Walker of Woodbridge. And he writes, Therese Coffey, MP for Suffolk Coastal, in her various cabinet posts, has, I believe, often shown a lack of understanding, both of her role and of the people she is supposed to serve. At a recent EFRA, that's Environment, Food and Rural Affairs Committee, meeting, she appears to have lost her self-control when being pressed to answer a question and insulted a fellow MP on the committee, repeatedly calling him pathetic. This is not, in my view, the behaviour of a competent Secretary of State. It looks rather like desperation. As Work and Pension Secretary, she was exposed as having no understanding of universal credit. After voting to remove the £20 Covid uplift, she then claimed that those on universal credit could work an extra two hours a week to make up for the £20 loss. In fact, it was calculated that someone would actually have to work nearer nine extra hours to make up the shortfall. As Health and Social Care Secretary, she openly declared that she gave her own unused antibiotics to friends and family, which is clearly irresponsible and dangerous. And now, as Environment, Food and Rural Affairs Secretary, she has done more, in my view, to harm the environment than to protect it. She has authorised the use of neonicotinoids, toxic pesticides which decimate the vital bee population. She is currently being heavily criticised for not tackling the dire emergency of pollution in our waterways and sewage dumping by the water companies. Is she out of her depth? I would suggest that it is time for her to step down, preferably with all her failed cabinet colleagues. Audrey Naylor from Ipswich writes, Early Years Child Care. There was a photograph in his newsletter of my Conservative MP Tom Hunt enjoying time in a preschool setting. I suspect he is hoping we will read into it support for childcare provision. Catherine McKinnell, Labour MP, however, has been speaking up against Conservative Party's proposed dilution of adult-to-child ratios for early years children. This terrible proposal was blocked in 2014 by Nick Clegg, Lib Dem, during a coalition government. As a mother, I can confirm infant brains are like sponges. At the stage of managing the toilet, forming sentences, expressing with words, imitating behaviour when one-to-one interactions make all the difference. The Department of Education, however, states on their consultation webpage that provision is for basic safety needs such as keeping children in sight at mealtimes and state the Department has decided to proceed with all proposals to amend two-year-old ratios from 1 to 4 to 1 to 5 and to amend EYFS wording around exceptions to childminder ratios. The latter amendment will mean carers can further include siblings. Despite the results of their recent public consultation being conclusively against the legislation change, the Department of Education state they are going ahead with reduction in care. I am so grateful to MPs like Catherine McKinnell, who campaigned for the unheard. Politicians are not all the same, and in my view we need to keep an ear to the ground so that we do not inadvertently re-elect a Conservative government that ignores the results of their public consultation. 
Now, my last letter comes from Don Black of Dis. Full of useful information, this man. In the feature on Felixstowe-based marine aircraft in the East Anglian Daily Times of April the 8th, Lieutenant Commander Philip Boke wonders what happened to the last two flying boats that for so long added to the charm of Felixstowe Ferry. Well, their hulls ended their working lives serving as houseboats in creeks on the River Deben. One was a supermarine Southampton, which in 1947 went to the RAF Museum at Hendon. The other, a fairy Atalanta, rose to the skies in a common bonfire. Back in the late 1930s, I remember Harwich Harbour seemingly packed with flying boats and smaller seaplanes. Much later, I learned why the harbour had and has such strategic importance. It is easily accessible shelter could be turned into an airbase simply by laying a few buoys and shore slipways. Water flowed instantly without cost to fill enemy bomb craters. One wonders why, with these advantages, the seaplane concept is now limited mostly to countries with lots of remote waterside communities and to small islands with no land space for airports. Seaplanes left our scene very rapidly after the end of World War II. Concrete runways had been built near and far to meet military needs, engines were more powerful and wing flaps permitted shorter airfields and heavier aircraft. Mishaps accelerated the trend. The short Shetland, destined to supersede the Empire flying boat on Commonwealth routes, caught fire while at moorings of Felixstowe in 1947. The Saunders Row SRA-1 jet <laughs> flying boat crashed in 1949. And my last letter for today is from Graham Day in Stowmarket, and he writes, It's been a blast. Listening to Radio Suffolk, we were totally surprised to hear Mark Murphy explaining he would be leaving the radio station 33 years of contributions to our everyday lives by a superb local broadcaster would be lost. Given that Mark was against the proposals to dismember the excellent local radio network and also had the determination to appear on the picket line, I suspect the intolerant hand of the BBC management had probably propelled him to this decision. For a person who had always wanted to be on the radio, this must have been a difficult decision. However, he leaves listeners with tremendous memories and wherever he, or whatever he does in the future, we can only wish him all the best. Thank you, Mark. It's been a blast. One day, perhaps, the BBC management will realise their crass stupidity and ignorance. Best wishes, Mark. I know you are probably not going into retirement, but perhaps you may find some time to restore your beach buggy and to become a member of the classic vehicle community. Now back to some general news. A life-sized horse sculpture created by a Fornham All Saints-based firm was on show at Aintree for the running of the Grand National. JG Sculpture was approached by the Jockey Club just two weeks ago about showing the stallion, which the company made from dismantled steel wheel rims for display at Park Farm Business Centre in the village. The sculpture was intended to symbolise energy, power and celebration, a brief which captured the imagination of Grand National organisers. 
John Goadby from JG Sculpture, spoke of his bride in being asked to display a work at one of Europe's biggest racing events. The offer came about, is un- came about in unlikely circumstances. Mr Goadby said, I was talking about the stallion and a client of mine said, would you possibly be interested in exhibiting it at a race? I didn't think anything of it until two days after that particular conversation. I got a phone call about two o'clock in the morning from the same client. And he said, if you want, we can get it, the sculpture, to the Grand National. Regarding the opportunity, Mr. Goadby stated, it's absolutely mind-blowing. To be honest, you have to grab these things as they come along. Local historian, author and tour guide Martin Taylor has trawled through his archive to find some of his favourite Bury St Edmunds pictures and stories from the past. And this one is a family that left its mark on the town. William Steggles and his son, also called William, were prolific builders during the 19th century, operating yards in the Brent Govel Street area and also owning a great deal of property in the town. They must have worked on nearly all of the streets in the town centre at one time or another. William Senior, who died at the respectable age of 79 in 1834, has his moniker at one end of Cannon Place, today Pea Porridge Green, which was built in 1825. The Steggles family businesses were certainly diverse, surveyors and masons. Another son, Humphrey, was a coal merchant, publican and molster, while William Junior's son, Edward, was a chemist in Checker Square. And yet another son of Junior, William Henry, went into the family building firm. The Steggles builders favoured the Suffolk white brick, mainly from Woolpit, and used these on the Garland Street Baptist Church, which they built in 1834, for the princely sum of £1,000, the William Barnaby almshouses in College Street in 1826, and the refronting of the Guildhall. This was owned by the Guildhall for fees, as was Long Row in Southgate Street, which the Steggles built in 1811. Whether the family overstretched themselves financially is a matter of conjecture. Suffice to say, in 1839, the year they were given the contract to carry out a major civil engineering project, William Jr. and William Henry were entered into the London Gazette as being in bankruptcy. The project in question was Eastgate Bridge, which was completed in 1840, and it would seem that their past trading record must have gone some way for the Eastern Counties Bank in Bury's Butter Market, now Lloyd's, to allow payment in one form or another to their creditors. This bridge was erroneously blamed for the terrible floods of the town in 1968 as not allowing sufficient water to pass under, but the flooding, apocryphally, was caused by the then Marquess of Bristol opening up the sluice gates at Ickworth, where the River Linnet rises, to protect his fish stocks in the lake there. Thus the gorged linnet exacerbated the amount of water going into the river lark. Thankfully this fine bridge survived demolition as proposed back then and is now listed. As a matter of interest you can see the family tomb of William and his wife Mary in the great churchyard near St Mary's, William Jr. having died aged 82 in 1859. Now this is about uh, Lackford Lakes and it's headed Lakes Come Alive with the Sound of Birdsong. It's a tuneful time of year at Lackford Lakes right now, as feathered visitors arrive from their winter break in Africa. Mike Andrews, a visitor experience officer, tells us about the birds we should listen out for. Spring is an exciting time for us at Lackford Lakes. 
As you wander around the trails, you can listen to the sound of singing birds, from the sweet and melodic sound of the blackcap to the distinctive call of the cuckoo. Throughout this month, more and more of the specialist songsters, or warblers, arrive back at the lakes from spending their winter in Africa. One of the first to arrive back has been the blackcap. This distinctive warbler with a black cap, hence its name, arrives back at the beginning of April. The middle of April sees the arrival of lots of different types of bird from Africa. From the distinctive sedge warbler that could be heard chattering from within the reeds on the reserve to the showy white throat that sings from brambles and shrubs. One of the amazing songsters that arrives back at Lackford each year is the nightingale. They have a remarkable song that is rich and fluty. Nightingale songs are very variable and they have been recorded to have up to 200 different phrases. When they first arrive, some of the birds can be a little quiet and when the weather is cold, they have to spend a lot of energy looking for insects to eat. Towards the end of April, the singing really begins to attract a mate, so it is a great time to visit the reserve to witness this spectacle. By the start of May, most will be busy building a nest, and then by the end of May, most warblers will be busy feeding their young around the reserve. Spring is a great time to see much of our wildlife at this busy time of year. To find out more about the wildlife at Lackford Lakes, pop into the centre when you arrive on the reserve. And now another feature. There are challenges ahead, but we are ambitious. The Theatre Royals started the month with new Arts Council status and optimism for its future. Programme notes. The Grade 1 listed Theatre Royal is owned by Green King, leased by the National Trust and run by Berris and Edmunds Theatre Management Limited. It was closed from 1925 to the 1960s, but when it was used as a barrel store. It underwent refurbishment in the mid-1990s and again from 2005 to 2007, when it was restored to a modern working version of its 1819 state. The auditorium originally held an audience of 800. Nearly three years ago, with the country firmly in the grip of the first COVID-19 lockdown, Owen Calvert-Lyons moved to the region to take on his new role as Artistic Director and Chief Executive of the Theatre Royal in Bury St Edmunds. At the time, the theatre was dark, with no prospect of reopening to paying audiences. Fast forward to now, and the organisation is hugely optimistic for its future. The theatre has just rejoined Arts Council England's national portfolio for the first time in eight years, becoming an NPO, that's a national portfolio organisation, and receiving annual funding of £220,000 until 2026. Owen describes the annual pantomime as the economic engine of the Theatre Royal. He said... After no pantomime in 2020, we had to get Cinderella on in 2021, and it had to stay on for as long as possible. If it didn't, it was a matter of great jeopardy for the theatre. If we'd had a second year without pantomime, probably the theatre would have ceased, as by then we had used so much of our reserve. Luckily, 2021 Cinderella was an amazing experience. 
It was the pantomime that ended up being the last panto standing, said Owen. As there was another surge in COVID-19 cases, pantomimes across the country were closing, and each week we thought it could be us. We managed to run all the way to the last performance. That kind of luck has been there throughout. But the organisation was not yet out of the woods. Cinderella really got us back on our feet, but we needed a second success in 2022. Therefore, Robin Hood was almost as important to us, and it absolutely smashed it, said Owen. We had huge numbers of audiences and income. We are so proud of it. It has got us back on an even keel. It feels like we're able to build back. The theatre's first in-house production of 2023, The Children, has just closed and was another success. We do three in-house theatre royal productions a year, with The Wizard of Oz and Snow White, the 2023 pantomime, still to come this year. We're busy cooking up what's next for April 2024, said Owen. Meanwhile, throughout the pandemic, staff were also working behind the scenes towards securing national portfolio funding from the Arts Council. The theatre last had national portfolio funding in 2015, but now it will receive £220,000 annually until 2026. We're very proud to be an NPO and long may that continue, said Owen adding that most of the national portfolio money would be used to fund the theatre's creative learning operation, much of which was decimated by the pandemic. When we reopened, there were audiences desperate to come back, but for our community programmes, there weren't people wanting to return immediately, he said. After the pandemic, those groups needed to be built from scratch. It has taken until this moment to be back to full swing. The National Portfolio Money is weighted to use for the theatre's community work. The creative learning is now core-funded and there are ambitions to grow it further. Currently, the theatre is in the middle of a feasibility study to see if it can find or build a space large enough to host its community learning work and in-house rehearsals. We have a small envelope of land here and it doesn't look like we have the room, said Owen. It has to be a big space and it needs to be wheelchair accessible and able to host school groups while the footprint of the rehearsal area has to match the size of the theatre stage. We are hoping Green King will support us as the owners of this building and if there's anyone else who might be able to help, we would love to hear from them. Even if we could build into the garden next door, it would probably give us enough space. Finding rehearsal spaces and spaces for our community work is the biggest challenge we face. Another long-term goal of the theatre is to improve its partnership work. We have such great partnership work across East Anglia, we want to tell stories from this region, said Owen. We have commissioned a new play through our commissioning circle about the witch trials in Bury St Edmunds for 2025. It's an important project as it is about a dark period for our own town and about violence against women. We are really excited about that project. It will be the first piece of original writing to be presented as an in-house production. A lot of our productions have been adaptations of classic stories. This is a completely original play and it feels like new territory. I think a Berry audience will appreciate it. 
As well as the theatre's own community engagement work, it also welcomes the region's long-standing community theatre companies, including the 128-year-old Barry St Edmunds Operatic Dramatic Society and 64-year-old Irving Stage Company into its family. The community companies are really important to us. They are made up of an extraordinary group of ordinary people participating in art, said Owen. I love that this town has such a brilliant amateur sector. It is wonderful seeing professional work, but you can't beat what a non-professional does. That's someone doing it out of passion. The people performing those shows have another full-time job, and then in the evenings they are putting their time and love into making art. The amateur and community companies will always have a home at the Theatre Royal. But while the theatre is now on a more stable financial footing, it still faces a range of hidden financial challenges, according to Owen. We've had only three years of spending money where it was vital, so there's been almost no investment in the infrastructure of the building. No investment in the technical equipment. Our van is on its last legs. Some things have been limping on, and these things are hard to fund. Our lighting equipment is really out of date. The rising cost of energy is a huge challenge. Inflation is hitting hard, productions cost more, and it's more expensive for them to stay the same, let alone grow, said Owen. There are challenges ahead, but we are an ambitious team. We don't want to stand still. The brave and exciting things we want to do come at a cost, but I am hugely optimistic. We're coming to the end of this edition of St Edmundsbury News Talk. If you have any comments about the memory stick or difficulty playing it, please use the phone number on the pink sheet which you've been given. Alternatively, you can put a note in the pouch when you return the memory stick to us. We'd like to acknowledge our appreciation to the Berry Free Press, the East Anglian Daily Times, the Haverhill Echo and Newmarket Journal, from whose pages most of our items have been taken. News Talk will be back again next week, so until then, from Sue, Roger, Sue and Neil, it's... Goodbye. Goodbye. listening to a podcast brought to you by the St Edmundsbury News Talk Association. You can view more information about News Talk on our website at www.stedmundsburynewstalk.org.uk. The music in this podcast was provided under Creative Commons license by Scott Holmes. This podcast was created entirely by volunteers in our Bury St Edmunds studio.